much for coming. It's lovely to see lots of people here. Hello, Bridget. Okay. Um, and uh, lots of Alan's colleagues here, which is very nice to see. Very su supportive or intimidating, I'm not sure which. Supportive. <laughs> so it's always nice to have faces you know. <laughs> so what, we talked a bit about what we might do, Alan, didn't we? And you tried to get away with just reading a few stories of Norfolk Tales. And I said, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that entirely. Though we'll try and squeeze something at the end. But want to talk about you and your time in the libraries and, and your life up to this point. So we're going to start right at the beginning with when you were born and where. I was born on uh, June the 18th, 1960, Welling Garden City, Applecroft Nursing Home. And I believe it was a Saturday, which should, by the, by the poem that goes, isn't it, that uh, a Saturday's child should work hard for their living. Um, to be honest, I have never found working hard... <laughs> Uh, an issue. I've uh, enjoyed the work I've done. I think I've been very lucky, which probably means that being a Gemini, there's a identical me out there working really hard, and I've had the easy ride. <laughs> Have you ever come into contact with this other one of you? Quite a few people do call me David because they think they've seen me before. <laughs> so make of that as you wish. Right. Well, we're very pleased that you're here, Alan, and not David in your place. So, were you an only child? Uh, yes, I, I like to think that uh, my parents haven't got perfection stopped. Uh, truth of the matter is, um, I was a, a compromise baby. Um, that sounds interesting. You want to expand on that? <laughs> my father wanted children, my mother didn't. Um, so they came to compromise, my mother, and she tells this story more than once, I had told this story more than once, including to my shocked wife-to-be. She said, my father was also called Phil. She said, well, Phil, I'll have one, but just the one. <laughs> so I was it. <laughs> I was glad you were going to say they wanted a dog, but they were going to... <laughs> I was the nearest thing they got to it for a while. <laughs> so do you think being an only child, I mean, obviously that leaves a little bit of a mark, what the story you just told, but has that shaped your life, do you think, at all? I don't, th I don't think so. It's only when you come across other people's lives that you realise, and their parents, that you realise that, ah, things are a little bit different. Um, but no, everything seemed quite perfectly normal to me. Okay. Anything particular that you kind of noted was different in the way that other people lived and were brought up to the way you were? Yes. <laughs> I can say this really. Um, mother wanted a companion. Um, so I became the companion, and so I didn't get many friends. Right. Um, which she was, was quite, quite, possess odd. quite possessive in that way, do you mean? In or? a way. I don't think yeah. possessive of me as such, but was possessive of... She's a bit like her mother, actually, and she <laughs> resented that uh, when her mother used her as a companion. So we used to go out for... Um, well, in school holidays, for example, rather than going out to playing with friends, I would tend to go out with mum, going to places like Guildford, Worthing, Eastbourne, places that were nearby. Um, which might sound a bit strange, but it seemed perfectly natural to me. Sure. Um, what we did is when we got to the place, Mum would go off and do her boring stuff like shopping, and I'd go off and look at uh, second-hand bookshops, historical sites, and libraries. So sort of at an early age, I got interested in libraries as a place to, to find information. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think in some ways that, that was a good thing for me. Sure. I mean, the odd thing is for all of us that... that um, we think how we've grown up is normal because until mm. later on we don't have anything to compare it with, no. do we? So as you say, um, w so you grew up 
where you were born? No. No? <laughs> Carry on then. No, we moved around a fair bit because my dad's work. Uh, so I was born in one of Garden City and we lived there for three years. Then we moved to Harlow for three years. And then we moved to uh, Sandersted, which is uh, a suburb of the London Borough of Croydon. Uh, nice part of Croydon. Um, used to be in Surrey, but now part of London. And that's where I really grew up. Uh, so if anyone else where your hometown is, I say Croydon, and they look very sympathetically at me. <laughs> <laughs> because apparently it's got a terrible reputation. <laughs> it was all right when I was there. Was that disturbing, moving around a lot? I Because I know, I mean, my parents didn't move house until I was in my late teens, but I really felt that move um, and the loss of that previous home, which I loved. Did you... I think I was too young for that because we moved when I was three, then we moved when I was six. So I didn't really get the roots down long enough, I think. And uh, I'd only just started school at Harlow before we moved to the new place. So, no, I didn't think I'd lost anything with that. And right. it just seemed, again, the natural thing to do, that uh, if, if we need to move house for Dad's job, that's what we do. Sure. And what did Mum and Dad do then? Uh, Mum was a housewife and um, Dad was... In the days when lots of people were housewives. Well, that's right. We are talking about traditional 60s sort of household. It wasn't particularly seen as a negative. It was... No, no. It was... But that's, you know, Mum wasn't expected to work. She was a, her job, if you like, was to raise me. Yeah. Um, and Dad, he was... Well, he worked in radios. He As a child in Leeds, he had uh, got interest in radios and used to make, build his own. Um, and... This just developed and he became uh, worked for electronic companies and um, eventually uh, became managing director of something called International Marine Radio Company, which was part of ITT, which was part of STC. Um, yes, <laughs> but the curious thing is uh, we had a holiday last year in Norway and um, we were on a ferry because there's a lot of ferry journeys in, in Norway and we got chatting to one of the people, that, a, a gentleman that we, we'd seen quite a bit. Um, and he started talking about uh, marine radios. I thought, oh, I, you, uh, you, you don't know about ITT. Oh, yes, he used to work for them. He didn't know my father, but he was my father's boss. So uh, out in the middle of a fjord in Norway, there's this kind of connection, which I thought was wonderful. It's, uh, life is full of such coincidences, yes. isn't it? Circumstances. And, and essentially, he moved from something that was a hobby then yeah. into without going to college or anything to do. He did with go that? to university, he went right. to the University of Leeds. Yeah. Um, and then various jobs until he got into electronic field. Right, right. So this, um, with the moves, uh, you're starting school, um, you haven't particularly had to change uh, schools at that time, or maybe you've, you've moved on once, but well, tell us a bit about school. Was that good? Was that Looking back, in, uh, it looks wonderful these days. Um, I'm sure I didn't like it as much as I think I liked it. Um, I do remember the shock of going from primary school to secondary school, because in primary school, when you called out your names, they started with your first name. And I was A for Alan. So I was always at the top of the class. <laughs> so when I came to a secondary school and it was Leavenfall, never your first name, just Leavenfall, that's a long way down. Yeah. So I felt, felt demotion that way. Um, curious thing about schools is I've been very lucky in, in, in life and things have happened to me um, without necessarily me knowing it's happened. And going to school was one of them. I went to Ridgeway Primary School in Sandersted. And when I was leaving, the option then was to go on to the local comprehensive school, which apparently was something my parents didn't want me to do. And as I turned out, even some of my friends didn't want their, their parents didn't want them to go to that school. The daft thing is that uh, they, in order to get away from this comprehensive school, one had to go there on a Saturday morning to sit an exam. I think it might have been the 11 plus, if it was around Sounds then. like it, yeah. yeah. Um, 
And the idea then was, uh, if you were clever, you went to the grammar school. Um, but I wasn't clever. It was a Saturday morning. I was, what, about 10, 11? There was Stingray on television, and I wanted to see an episode. And I was cheesed <laughs> off going to this wretched school. So I didn't do well at it, which didn't surprise me, and I suspect it didn't surprise my parents. But um, this is where sort of fate came in. I was so concerned with my parents about the school that I, I was now heading for, that they, they sent me to a private grammar school in Wallington, which was the neighbouring borough in the London Borough of Sutton. So I got to a school I shouldn't have got to, and a borough I shouldn't have got to, but you know, money pays. What we didn't know, and it turned out to be a bit of good luck in the end, but what we didn't know is that the headmaster of this independent school had sold the property to the local London Borough of Sutton to be redeveloped which was really a nasty move to make, particularly for those children who were in the upper levels who were going to be doing their exams. When a group of parents got together uh, and were quite vocal and quite active in protesting about this closure, and though my father wasn't the chairperson, he was on that board and he would have been quite active and quite vocal. <coughs> it's so much so that the London Borough Sutton said, well, okay, what we'll do, because we are kind of no, involved in this, if your children are... are to a group of parents they said if your children are, can make it they can go to the local grammar school which is Wellington High School for boys as opposed to Wellington High School for girls so I went along for an interview um, of which I can remember very little apart from talking to the history teacher and he would ask me what is what do what do humans and rats have in common <laughs> and I didn't know the answer then I do now it's fleas <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> He must have liked me, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the headmaster then said that, um, well, I, my French was weak, which we knew, and my math was atrocious, which I did know. But if I got uh, extra help on both of those, then they'll accept me. So I got into a school in a, I shouldn't have gone to, in the London borough, a different London borough than I should have gone to, which was kind of good in the end. Um, and one of the best things, I think, was the first year, because they, they, it was a split site. Um, they had a new school, I say new school, 1920s, um, but they used um, an offshoot of uh, a uh, crew manor, which was uh, a Tudor building, uh, still exists. Um, so we started off in this old Tudor building, this palace in effect, mm. uh, which is lovely in, in, uh, in Beddington. And we used to have to walk up to uh, the big school to get the food and then walk back down in the afternoon. And it was a story about uh, the school being haunted, this the Karoo Manor being haunted by the ghost of uh, Sir Walter Raleigh's wife. And Sir Walter Raleigh did have connections with that area and the story is that his head was returned to his wife and she held it in a, a bag, a leather bag around her waist. And As you would. Oh, yeah. well, a keepsake. Yeah. Um, and apparently she was meant to be seen at the school. Never saw her, but it, it gave a bit of spice when you're alone in this classroom, you know, and the creaks and groans from this, this Tudor building. So, um, yeah, so I was very lucky in the sense that I ended up at a school that I had no right to go to and uh, academically I wasn't suited for, but it must have done me good because I did leave with O and A levels and, uh, and they did, I don't remember, remember a couple of prize givings and I think they gave me the prize for the, the, the boy less le least likely to succeed. <laughs> but I've got the book still. <laughs> Could I just ask you about the name Leventhal? Where does yeah. that come from? Leventhal. Leventhal. Let's call Leventhal. the whole thing off. So you, how, how do you pronounce it? I don't know. Uh, we can say Leventhal. Um, it, the short answer, it's from Yorkshire. The longer answer, it's from Leeds, Yorkshire. The really long answer is it's from Russia. 
Um, in Which country, is close to Yorkshire, of course. Indeed. <laughs> uh, it's the, the, the part of Russia that we now know as Latvia. Um, you know, so we're talking about sort of Victorian period for ourselves, talking about late 19th century, um, and it's persecution. Leventhal is a Jewish name. Um, and my ancestors, who were Jews at the time, were being kicked around um, by the Tsar's men, and they fled. It's per per um, religious persecution. And the plan was to leave from Riga um, and go down to Hull, cross England, get to Liverpool and go to America. Uh, well, they got as far as Leeds. <laughs> why would you want to go any further? <laughs> so Quite they stayed right. there. So. Quite right. And their loss was, your, was our gain, well, of course. Well, bless you. So, <laughs> but uh, yes, well, the, the Jewishness sort of faded out. Uh, my father, he lost a child, a, a sister when she was young and he couldn't see how any God could allow that to happen. So he grew up an atheist. My mother was baptised Church of England, but she was an atheist. Um, so I'm open to religion, but I don't have a particular one myself. Right. What was, um, your, your father was the one who went out to work. Mm. Was there a close-ish relationship mm. with him? Did he give oh, you yes. time when he was home? Oh, no. Or just was... ask for the paper and slippers? No, no, no. He was a fantastic <laughs> father, and I, I miss him dearly, as I do with my mother. But, um, yeah. He was a hard worker, um, had a lot of responsibility because he employed a lot of people. Um, he was a bit of a maverick as well. He did tell one story about uh, his, his company that uh, he was running but didn't own. Um, he got wind that they were thinking about the owners, um, were thinking of sending it off. Um, so he basically gate crashed the meeting, which they didn't expect him to be there. And sort of put up good objections while they, you know, if they're going to sell the company, well, they sell it to him. And then they decided, well, if he's so keen on it, we'll, we'll keep him on as an employee and keep the company going. So, you know, right. I thought it was, yeah. 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 And I know he argued for people's pensions if he felt people were not going to get a good pension. Um, right. He would put an argument up, well, they should get better. Yeah. So sounds he did like, look after his people. Sounds like a good film script in there. I mean. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Anything particularly you enjoyed about school? Anybody particularly inspiring to you at that stage? Mr. Berry. <laughs> Mr. Berry, the history teacher. He was from, it was Lancashire, I think it was. But he had a sort of strong Lancashire, northern accent. He used to come, he's a bit like a Boris Johnson character. He used to come in all sorts of Sheffield, tie out, and show, and say, you boy, tidy yourself up. <laughs> <laughs> and he was fantastic. I mean, you want to cross him, but uh, I think he and my mother were the ones that gave me my love for history. Right. I obviously had it before I went to school, but I think Mr. Berry, unwittingly and unknowingly, sort of furthered it. Yeah. Any, anything particularly that you could identify that, that had, had struck a chord with you via him at that time? Was there any, you know, other than his personality and... That, that being slightly charismatic in that way, was there? Well, the fact he made history fun. Right. Again, I don't know if he knew he was doing it, but he did, and it, it brought it alive. It wasn't just dates and uh, facts. There was actually the connections and the interpretations that came out. Right. And I realised there's much more to history than up to then I'd known. Okay. So uh, uh, during that time, were you beginning to formulate any sense of what you might want to do with your life? Or were your parents formulating something? Did they have aspirations for you? Oh, I'm sure they had aspirations, but uh, no, they didn't have sort of... They were very good in that they let me do what I wanted to do. Um, you know, Dad didn't say... I mean, he realised I, I, 
the the skill the, the scientific skill had by dad got a, a degree in physics at the university you know i i don't understand physics science is passed me by and he understood that and he didn't you know, make a fuss of that it was understood my interest was more in the art side more in the the, the history side the literature side um so, but no, I hadn't any idea. I mean, I was younger, I sort of wanted to be a, a sweet shop owner, a toy shop owner, a doctor, a lawyer. Some say you want to be a taxidermist. I don't know if you can make a trade out of that. <laughs> then rather worryingly an undertaker. I think I was looking for jobs that, I think I was looking for jobs that people wouldn't want to do necessarily. And there might be sort of opening, but... Uh, did you know people who did these jobs, no. or you just picked them at random? I knew shop owners, toy shop owners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but but none of those kind of put their roots down and no. <laughs> took hold of you in any way. No, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And okay. When I went to university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So at the end of schooling, you decide to go to university because your father had already done it and the family was supportive of that, or you weren't sure this would be a good way of postponing thinking about what you had no, to do? No, I wasn't pushed into going, it was actually polytechnic, I wasn't good enough for university, and thereby lies the story I'll tell in a moment. Um, <laughs> so we went to Brighton Polytechnic, and, uh, which is in the farmer site, which is a lo- it was out on the Downs, it's a lovely, lovely site to be, opposite the University of Sussex. The beauty of Brighton is it's 60 miles from where I live, so, and right. it's a railway link, so, you know, little young lad who couldn't even cook for himself was, you know, being shoved out somewhere, but at least I could get home if needed to quickly. That was nice. Um, but I didn't really like the course. Right. Um, it was history, which I liked, but it also had a religious content, which I didn't realise it was going to be Indian religion, which I, I don't have a problem with, but I just couldn't understand the names. And you know, I, I found it very difficult underst- putting everything together. And I thought, I think I've made the wrong choice here. And then something happened to me, one of these strange things, and I now wish Having actually thought about it, I wish I'd told, asked, spoken to Dad about this. But he got in his head that he would apply for me to go to University of East Anglia, Norwich. Why he chose Norwich, why he didn't discuss it with me, <laughs> all I know next was then, OK, you don't like Brighton, you're going to Norwich now, UEA. Uh, lovely, thank you. And, <laughs> and because of the way, it just seemed a natural thing to do, you know. Yeah. Had yeah. you made friends at Brighton? I mean, did that feel oh, a wrench yes. at all? But... Yes, but I realised that... Um, I was struggling with the course and yeah. it really would be best to sort of do something better, right. do something different. Right. Something I understood. Okay. Um, so you're now quite a lot further away from home, mm. which means you can't do that homeward dash. Um, perhaps you'd not, you'd discovered you didn't need to anyway. Um, did you like it? What, what were your first impressions of Norfolk and Norwich? Well, I have, I have a lovely, lovely memory of Norwich. The first time I saw Norfolk and Norwich, was in the summer of 1979 and it was the hiatus between leaving Brighton Polytechnic <coughs> and going to UEA so I knew I had a place at the University of East Anglia and uh, my mum had gone out to uh, a residential course Bishop, Man- Bishop Manor I think somewhere like that uh, I think it was Towns Women's Guild or anyway she belonged to one of the societies she had a, sort of weekend away so it was just the two lads at home and uh, we thought it'd be a jolly good idea to go and see my grandfather, who's then living in Leeds. So the quickest way of doing it from South London is obviously via Norwich. So that's what we did. We had a, we had a father and son road trip. Um, and I wish I could remember more of it, but what I do remember, I do, I do treasure. Uh, we got to Norwich, we got there quite late, and we were parked in the Bethel Street car park. And this is in the days when it was an open air car park. And there was the library behind us. Of course, I went into the library. Um, I do remember 
we, we, we parked the car and the chap was walking by and we said, well, where's the city centre? Because it just didn't look like a city centre. <laughs> you know, you've got the city hall, you've got the library, you've got a big church, but actually you don't see much of the city. And of course the chap said, you're in the centre. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know there's much more to it now. <laughs> but at that stage in the dusk, when you're sort of in an open air car park and you're looking around, there's, there's not a great deal to see, but you realise it's all on a slightly slower level. And then we drove across county in the dusk and got to Kings Lynn. And I remember going underneath the South Gate very well. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, and I do remember it was dark and there was a building on the corner which was brightly lit up. And I don't know whether it was the library or the police station now, but I fancy it was the library. I like to think it was yes. the library. My first introduction to Kings Lynn. Could library. have been either, couldn't it? It could have been probably yeah. both. We stayed overnight in a hotel near the South Gate, which is still there. And I always, always smile when I go past it. And the next day we crossed county to get to Nottingham. We had a day uh, in Nottingham City. And it was a very, very windy day. And there was a flag flying from the top of the castle. And I mean, I, I, I like heraldry. Uh, so I saw this image on this, this flag. I couldn't make out what it was. So uh, I persuaded Dad that we ought to climb this the, the, up the hill on this very windy day, risk life and limb to find out what was on the flag. It was a blue flag with a white goose on it because it was a goose fair. Oh, the goose, yeah, so yeah. wow. And then we got on to Leeds, <laughs> uh, which was lovely. And yeah, so and a, a good bonding weekend and trip. From yeah, it's not that we needed the bonding. No, no. It's nice to, to have dad to, to, to myself, yeah. Yeah. which obviously didn't often happen. Yeah. So what was the the, the history course like at UEA? What what? Um, oh, it's great, and I understood it. <laughs> Except I had, a, I do remember we, we used to handwrite out <coughs> our essays in those days, and I got interested in ships. And for some reason, my brain had a brain blip, and I did a whole essay about sheep where I put ship in instead. <laughs> and I remember, that, remember my uh, tutor looking at it and saying, "We can't give degrees to illiterate people, you know." <laughs> <laughs> they did. It was just, it was just a brain blip. I don't know. I don't know what happened, but but no, I, I did get through that. But the best, best, best thing that happened to me at university was on the first day. Monday the 4th of October 1979 and I met this lovely lady and uh, she was sitting down on the steps I don't know exactly where it was and she had a little blue piece of paper in her hand and I had a little bit of blue piece, piece of paper in my hand and the blue piece of paper was the, the menu or the, uh, the agenda for the day and I said something like oh you lost two and it wasn't going to be a chat up line <laughs> and she said and I went to this little chat. I said, Do you want to wander around the university together? I said, We wander around the university together. And he said, Do you want to meet up tonight for a drink? And I said, Yeah. And basically, that's how I met Doreen. And uh, uh. You know, three years later, we got married. Mm. Or four years later, we got married. Yes, yeah, so it was a year after we graduated. And uh, I haven't got rid of her since. <laughs> so that's the best bit of university. That's what I remember with a great deal of affection. Yeah. But I did enjoy the course. Uh, we had some fantastic lecturers. Um, and I understood everything this time around. If I did get ship and sheep confused, <laughs> I think we should point out that she hasn't got rid of you either. This is so it's a two-way thing. This is very true, Phil. So during this time, I'm guessing from what you said um, previously to me that you still weren't really sure what you wanted to do. Were you thinking that you wanted to make his- history a career in some way? Or? I had no idea. But Doreen, I think, suggested something yes. to do with libraries. Is that correct? Yes, she said, why don't you become a librarian? You spend enough time in them. She meant that in a nice <laughs> way. It wasn't a sort of, you spend enough time there. No, she realised that oh, it was me who introduced Doreen to the Norwich Library. I said, well, let's go and join the public library. I think it was our first Saturday together. <laughs> I don't know how to show a good time. 
Yes. You know how to give someone a good time, don't you? Yeah, yeah. so off we went to the library. It was actually a very good move because they had books there that were on our course that we couldn't get at the university because they didn't have enough at the university and people had them out. So that's quite good as well. Um, and yeah, she just realised I, I, I nosed around in libraries. Then just in, information retrieval, I guess is the posh term for it, but having a good nose around and seeing what there is is what I'd call it. Mm. And it's something I'd, I've done since... As I mentioned earlier, going out with Mum on those trips, you know, got to know Guildford Library, Eastbourne, Worthing libraries very well. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the libraries you've worked in then? Because you, you, you then kind of dotted around a bit, didn't you, going to different... After, you did a little bit of work in a library, yes. which obviously didn't put you off, and that was in Essex somewhere, wasn't uh, it, or Suffolk? Suffolk, Suffolk. Suffolk. I worked at Bury St Edmunds Library, and it was for a year's contract to get pre-library school experience. So it's basically working on the counter, but also learning shelving books and how libraries work and attending some meetings and the like. So that was a very good grounding. I went off to the Polytechnic of North London in 1984 for a year and got a diploma in librarianship and information studies. And then both Dora and I wanted to work in Norwich uh, because Doran came from Cambridgeshire and I come from anywhere really. Uh, <laughs> no, I could settle anywhere, um, which I think has been an advantage of being moving around. Yes. Um, and I thought, yeah, Norwich is a really nice place. I'd like to work in the library. And this was the old Bethel Street yeah. Library. I thought it was lovely nooks and crannies. And I was always intrigued, what do I on that door? And where do those steps lead to? Um, but the first job I got was in Barnstable in North Devon, which is not as far away as you can get. It's a good stab at it. Yeah. Um, so I was second in charge at um, Barnstable. And then an opportunity came up to become librarian in charge at Great Torrington Library. Uh, with assisting the librarian in charge at Biddeford Library, so I said goodbye to Barnstable. I mean, it's all quite close to places, and when we lived in Barnstable, I just drove to these libraries. And then Biddeford Library came up as, as a full-time um, librarian in charge, both, so I got that. Uh, so we spent a good time in North Devon and got to know it really well. And we had Laura then, uh, our firstborn. She was Barnstable baby. Um, and then we thought would, an opportunity came up to go to Grantham in Lincolnshire, so I applied for that job, um, I got it, and, and Richard was born, uh, so he's our, our yellow belly. Um, and then I had a restructure, and I didn't like how it was going, so I looked around again for another job, and then King That's Lincoln. unusual, a restructuring in the library. Yeah. Right. Oh, I've, been, I've survived a few of them, Phil. <laughs> um, I came to King's Lynn, and um, that's when we had Rebecca. So, our Norfolk child, so we're not going to move any more because I don't think we can afford it. <laughs> uh, so, and I like Kings Lynn and I like that west part of the county. And having come from Lincolnshire, having come from Grantham, yeah. really pretty. I've got nothing against Grantham, but it's a bit limited in what you can do. You know, there was one walk we could go to. If you want to go to the seaside, it's about a 100 mile round trip to Skeggy. You know, it wasn't a, I mean, lovely, Lincoln's lovely. There's lovely places to go to Stanford, but mm. you had to go in a car and you had to make an effort to get there. Whereas, in Kings Lynn, you've got Sandringham a short distance away. The coast is, you know, negligible distance. You've got walks nearby, lots of woodland. Yes. So really, no, I feel really fortunate to be living in West Norfolk. Um, there were a few more restructures, and I was, uh, uh, I was based in Fakenham, and it's one time or another included Wells, Holt, and Sheringham. So I've been to, to a few libraries in Norfolk. But I ended my days here as... Uh, Community librarian, fake place at Fake Number Covering Holt, which I met all oh, you nice people. Mm. Okay, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the challenges and rewards of being a librarian? Because, you know, for there are people here who shared jobs and overlapped with you, but for those of us who've not been involved, 
what what are the what are the rewards of being a librarian? What are the particular challenges? I don't mean the immediate challenges, mm. but just general challenges of being. Well, the thing I, I mean, when, when, when it was pointed out to me that I ought to become a librarian, uh, the thing I liked the idea was I can help people find information because that's what I like doing. Um, so I find that very rewarding, um, helping people, you know, whether it be seeking out information or let, on latter days, you know, helping people find information on the in internet. And in some cases that might mean showing people how to use the internet in the first place. Hmm. Um, the challenges were always not quite sure what's around the corner when the next restructure would come. Um, but on the whole, it was meeting people and helping people. Hmm. Uh, that was the reward for me. Are there any particular incidents to do with people and, and working in the library, helping people or, or whatever that, that are in your mind? One that does come to mind was helping somebody locate some um, ancestors uh, on the computer and she was in tears at the end of it because she made the connection she hadn't been able to make before and she thought I was wonderful. I mean she did all the work, all I did was just, you, know, you click here and put this name in here. But that was that was very moving because it obviously meant so much to her to, to make these connections and get the information. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. Give us an average day in the life of a librarian. Um, I mean, I know that's probably more difficult now, but when you were working in the service, um, you know, and you did all those moves, what did an average day involve? Well, it depends when you start. I came to King's Lynn. The average day was basically spent half of it on the inquiry desk. Uh, sometimes asking the inquiries, but mostly getting stuff out from the local studies section, maps and folders and files and the like. And the rest of the time seemed to be either writing reports, attending meetings, or doing timetables, because I was responsible for the staffing then. Right. Um, but later, later on, we came on to... It's always been quite difficult to answer this one, when it says, what do you do? Because it's been so varied in libraries. It could be you know, running court. I mean, it could be going to a, a play group to read stories and, and promote the library service, working with children's centres, working with people like yourself, Phil, getting involved with things like Carnival of the Animals, um, computer work. Um, it, it's, it's very varied. Mm. And when I think when, when I started, most of my day was sat on the inquiry desk waiting for people to come and speak to me, <laughs> to where to ended actually going out and talking to community groups, schools, um, read, doing uh, shared reading sessions in the library and outside the library. It was so varied. Mm. So there was no day was the same. Right. Which, was really which is part of the reason you liked it, I yeah, imagine. I would have thought I wouldn't have liked that, actually, because I do like a routine. But I love the fact that it was always so varied. And you know, sometimes I'd have to stop and think, is this a Monday or a Tuesday? I couldn't say, oh, I did this yesterday, therefore it must be this today. So it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. This is what I was saying. I think, you know, I said uh, at the beginning, I, I think there is another one of me out there who's working really hard and, and hating it because I didn't feel it was hard work and I loved what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Strangely, you've gone back now after retiring into working in the study centre. So that's a bit like being back on the inquiries desk, is it? And um, and finding out maps and sorting things out for people? Well, How I'm stuck that? behind the scenes now, so people don't know I'm there. So that's, uh, it's not quite the same as, as working on the desk. But yes, I, I now volunteer for uh, work one day a week at the local studies at Kingsden Library, um, which is something I'd, I'd love to have done when I was actually working for the authority. But they always put me on uh, working groups. Um, I did have a short stint on the local studies working group and thought, wow, this is fantastic, I love this. 
Um, but then they said, well, actually, you've got two people from the West doing this, so why don't you do digital resources, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> I think the face says it, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I never say no, so yeah, I was like, oh, no, I'm not a digital chap. So I ended up on digital, you know, I thought, this, this is not me. So actually being able to do some digging into local studies uh, session, section and uh, finding information for people is fantastic. Um, it's a bit embarrassing because people can clean they think, you know, you're good at this, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. You, you could do this. The advantage I have is I've got the time. And when you've got two people working out front in the library, they can't spend an hour going through a newspaper trying to find a particular article or digging around in the local studies section, which could be folders, books, pamphlets, maps. Um, some, it could even be on microfilm form. You know, it, I have the time to do it, so I'm not doing anything special. I'm just fortunate I've got the time to do it. And what I'm doing, I'm also picking up some stuff for myself. So it's, yeah, I'm, I'm learning, I'm getting a better idea of what's in the local studies section. So I feel I'm benefiting from it too. Is that a bit like, uh, uh, you know, I, I know I did and I've come across numbers of other people who kind of felt they were waiting for the fraud squad to turn up during life to say, you don't know how to do this, do you? And you go, no, it's fair enough, I'm just doing the best. Well, the turn up now, I've said it, but <laughs> um, yeah, I just feel, I'm fortunate, I just feel very fortunate I'm able to do this. Hmm. I've now got the time to do it and I, yeah, because I have the ability ability to do it. When you came back to Norfolk, what was it like? What what impact did Norfolk have on you? What did you think about the place? Sunsets! That's what we love, the sunsets! Because in Devon, uh, they've got a few hills. And the only place we could get a sunset was to go to Instow Beach and between the headland over the sea, you could see the sunset. So we missed the gorgeous sunsets over the setting and Norfolk. But so it, it was lovely to come back to territory that we, we felt at home at. Mm. Not that we didn't feel at home in Devon, but it was nice to come back to landscape that felt very familiar, um, very short distance away from where Doreen's parents lived. So it was lovely to come see the in North. And they really are nice in North. So um, unfortunately, uh, Doreen's father's died now, but uh, have a good relationship with her, her mother which is lovely, mm. very fortunate. Um, but yes, there's a coming back to the east of the county and you know, sort of achieved what we wanted to do. Sure. What, what, can, can you identify the characteristics of Norfolk as compared to any other county area that you'd, you'd lived in? Any, um, beyond the landscape and mm. all of that, which we'd say, you know, the huge skies and all of that, which lots of us love. What, what, what could you identify in terms of the people and the way people were and the community worked and things that was um, particularly marked then and maybe has changed since or not? I'm not sure a great deal has actually because people are people wherever you find them and yeah. uh, they were, you found welcoming people in Devon, you found awkward people in Devon, you got welcoming people in Norfolk and the same. So people are very, very much the same I think. Um, I couldn't say, oh yeah, Norfolk folk are very different from, from Devon people, mm. uh, apart from the accents. Um, we feel different. Yeah. Oh, sure ab- you do. <laughs> and what about Holt? What was that? What did? What was your first impression of Holt when you came here? What a charming place. Okay. What an unusual place. I didn't understand the history of it then, so I didn't know why it was such a Georgian town and why it sort of yeah. missed out so much of the redevelopments that you might have expected. And then you sort of the, the quaint alleyways. And as I when I started working here, I got to meet the people. And yeah, you realise actually it is a, it is a small community but it has a big heart and it's actually a very nice community to be in mm. where people do know each other. The fact that so many people are, can recognise today. Yes. Um, 
So yeah, it has advantages of being a town, but not a sort of an um, anonymous town. You do sense of and shopkeepers and the like. You still you you, you know these people when you see them. You, you feel you can chat with them, mm. and people out on the street you feel that you can talk with, mm. which you don't get quite so much in somewhere like Kings Lynn, for example, just because of the scale of the place. Sure, yeah. sure. So in some senses, it felt a bit like coming home, coming back. You don't. Mm. You said you'd made this kind of plan, both you and Doreen, of wanting to come back here. Um, one day was there has there ever been anything that made you think maybe we would be happier somewhere else we'd no. you know would have taken you somewhere else no I mean wherever the job would have taken us we would still wanted to go back to Norfolk we may never have achieved that dream you don't you don't know but we were fortunate that it did work out um I'm certainly very happy to end my days here I wouldn't want to go anywhere else mm. any other place possibly would be back south but Having had a visit, we couldn't afford to live there for a start, but it's too fast, it's too frantic, it's too different. I went to, last last year I think it was, I, I received a letter in the post, handwritten letter, which was a bit surprising. Um, and it, even more surprising, it was from who it was written by. It was a, a friend of mine I hadn't seen since um, Ridgeway days, my primary school. Oh my goodness. Uh, yes, uh, he started off with, um, are you the Alan Levin, uh, Alan I used to play with, who lived, lived, used to, uh, lived around uh, Sundown Avenue? Uh, if you're not, I'm very sorry to bother you, but if you are, it'd be lovely to get in contact again. I've got your details from the internet. That's a bit... Okay. <laughs> We've moved since then, so it doesn't matter. No, okay, that's fine. Um, so I wrote a letter back, and thankfully he's got an email, so we were able to sort of get in contact. I thought, actually, it'd be quite nice to go and meet Chris again. Um, so I did... Uh, two or three weeks back, we went down to... Croydon and it has changed greatly um, I even got lost coming out of East Croydon railway station <laughs> uh, how do you do that um, it's got trams as well I mean it, it, it's nice Even though it has a fearful reputation I understand it's nice but um, I thought this isn't me anymore um, going to Sandstead hadn't changed at all it was it, it was wonderful <laughs> we could have been children again all the houses everywhere everything I expect turn a corner and there it was exactly as I left it or so it seemed but um, it would be too high price to pay to, to go to go back and quite frankly we've got our friends we've got our links up here yes no I, I want to stay in Norfolk we want to stay in Norfolk sure well I'm pleased about yeah. that I was really, go on I was going to say what was really nice is uh, our, our eldest daughter she had to go to Manchester for, uh, for training, for legal training. And we thought, oh, well, we've lost Laura now. She's going to go. She liked the big city life. Um, the fact she could go out and it was a vibrant place. Um, unfortunately, she was flat sharing, uh, house sharing, and the person she was sharing with couldn't get a job in Manchester, so came back to Warwickshire. And Laura couldn't stay on alone, so she had come back to Kings Lynn. And we thought, oh dear, this is going to be a real come down. She even had to come and live with us for a while, which is very hard to do. Um, uh, not because we don't like each other, but having an adult and having your, your freedom yeah. come back even to a fairly liberal parents, it's quite difficult. And then she started finding jobs in Kings Lynn, and, and she said, Actually, I like Kings Lynn, and I like being with you. I thought, This is fantastic. You know, we've not lost Laura, and she's seen the beauty of Norfolk as well and the appeal of it. Because we thought, Yeah, we've lost her to, to, to Manchester. You know, we'll keep in contact, obviously, but um, yeah, we're not going to have that, we're not going to see her quite so often. So that, that's nice. Yeah, that's it, nice. it's, it's the, the appeal of the place. Mm. There's something about Norfolk um, that definitely does make it a nice place to be. Yeah, yeah, it seems to draw people back. Mm. 
Is there anything you're particularly proud of in your career in the libraries? Anything you, you think back on and think, I'm really glad I made that happen? I find questions like this very difficult, Phil. Mm -hmm. um, well, you can ignore it and we'll move on to the next one if you'd rather. But Well, I have to think on it, but yeah, yeah it sort of smacks of boasting and I, I, I find very... I used to have a terrible time with um, doing appraisals and the like. Not that I got bad appraisals, but I just couldn't big myself up, I think is a phrase. I just couldn't... Even at the interview, uh, uh, the last interview, I, I, I kept on saying, well, yeah, I did this... But the team saw it through. And I couldn't actually say, yeah, I did all this, I'm brilliant. It just, just, just doesn't seem right. So anything that's achieved has been achieved as a group. It's not just been me doing it. Right. But, you know, it's been lovely working with schools. It's been lovely working with yourself. You know, things like kind of with the animals. Um, but it's all been a team effort. I've been part of something rather than a real prime motivator, I think. Right. Well, the converse would be, is there anything you regret? That might be equally difficult. Or perhaps that's easier. I'm not sure I have any regrets, to be honest. Good. Um, if I had, I've, I've forgotten them. Um, now, work-wise, I think, yeah, maybe some, it might have been nice if, if some restructure had worked out differently. It might have been nice if uh, Lincolnshire had worked out better than it did. But no, I mean, everything's worked out ultimately to the, the, a, a good end, I think. Yeah. yeah. So no, I haven't got any regrets. Good. I'm either a very lucky man or a very stupid man. I don't realise it. <laughs> I think you're a very lucky man, Alan. What, what do you think, looking ahead, now that you're not centrally involved in it, what do you think are the challenges facing the library and the worries? It's got to be financial, and it's got to be the relevance of libraries to communities now. Um, and we know more cuts are likely to come. What I will say about Norfolk is it does value libraries. Um, and the fact that it hasn't closed any libraries has been a, a tremendous boom and the fact that they've even created a way of opening libraries when they should be closed normally like today mm -hmm. and it goes to show that they really are and despite what happened to me it goes to show that they really are trying to keep libraries going and I appreciate that mm -hmm. and uh, I, I think certainly somewhere in Norfolk there's going to be robust enough to meet the challenges but I think that yeah there are going to be very hard financial pressures still forthcoming yeah. and making libraries relevant it's amazing, yeah, and amazing, and you get the sense from you, the, there's an extraordinary positiveness about, with, with the people who work in libraries and with the work that they, they do and how they manage to reinvent themselves mm. and pick up again and, yeah. and move forward, which I think is wonderful. Uh, and the, the, the sense that has grown continually of, of libraries being a sort of communal hub, being a neutral space, being a place where lots of things can happen and more and more things are which I think is great. And you were very much involved with initiating that through when you were a community librarian, weren't you? The sense of role, reaching out that, into yes. the community and, mm. and making things happen. Um, tell us a little bit about local history, because you, you, it, it is a real passion for you, isn't it? That um, besides library work or, or in tandem with it, you've really got involved. And I know you tell a story about how you first got interested in local history. Do you want to just tell us that when you were working as a removal man? Oh, um, gosh, you know? no, yes. I was trying to think which, which one you went. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyone will. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, 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 this is true. This is when I was at university and it was in the summer holidays. I got a, a job uh, moving furniture around, would you believe? Um, and we shifted furniture from central Croydon to somewhere in north Croydon. Um, but what I remember with great fondness is the driver and the chap I was working with 
We kept on pointing out things as we were driving along, you know, to point out where the Crystal Palace was. Well, I knew that. But they pointed out something called Beulah Spa. And apparently there was a little spa in Croydon. Uh, it's still a woodland glen today, if you know where to find it. And there was grand plans to have uh, a, a crescent built on the, overlooking the hill, a bit like Bath, you know, so uh, people come and take the waters in Croydon. Uh, it didn't quite take off. The Crystal Palace saw the end of it, I think, actually. But it's just lots of bit of history, you know, sort of what looked like um, a Jolly Sailor's Pub. It's just like a, a pub on the high street. They point out there used to be a canal behind that. That's why it's called the Jolly Sailors. Uh, now the railway line has taken up the, the route that the canal took. I thought, well, I'll look at this, and I'll start getting interested in history that way. I mean, uh, up to then, I've been interested in national history. I hadn't really thought about local history in any real sense. But so I think, actually, and then you realise that there's national events, like wars and the like, they have an impact on the locality. It's not just something happened up there in history. It, it, it affected people down below, you know, and everybody's a, a, affected by it. Uh, so that sort of really spurred on the interest in local history. Hmm. And so, yeah, I thought, nosed around even more libraries find about the local history there. You and I have had to go to meetings here and there occasionally and I know when we went to Cromer for something once you were very keen to point out to me a plaque on the oh, wall. Yeah. Do you want to just tell us about that? Well it's, it's, it's where Richard, when it, Richard III, before it's Richard III, when he was in exile and returned, to, he, he left from King's Lynn, went to the low, lowlands and then he came back via Cromer. And there's a plaque on the steps there, which will say in uh, 1471 that uh, the king, which wasn't uh, Richard at the time, and Richard, <coughs> they landed here. So I like, like the idea that Cromer has this bit in... I don't know where that is, which steps? It's by the... Um, the slope by the, yeah. the light, like by the Lifeboat Museum, where the Rocket Cafe is. You know, oh, the, the, the oh, cobbled yes, slope yeah. that goes down. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's some steps that go up there. Um, up above the shops and it's just on the wall up there. Oh, right. I, I, I wouldn't yeah, have ever spotted it. It's, it's a, a green level. plaque on a red brick wall I think so it, it yeah, merges a bit it. but I think it's I only sweet. spotted it as I went down one day. Oh. Thought, oh, what's this? And there are other things that you are you I know of know a little bit about. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the Voyage of the Bounty? Oh. Ah, right. Um, how long have you got? <laughs> well, we're all right. We've got ten minutes. Three hours coming up now. I'll do the, the quick version. Um, I had been aware of the Beauty and the Bounty when I was a, as a child. I think everybody is. And I'd, 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 like, like most people, I'd seen the Charles Lawton version and accepted that this was, you know, Bly was a sadist. He liked flogging the men because he enjoyed inflicting misery. And Christian was an upright chap who, uh, Fletcher Christian, upright chap who saw off the, the evil captain. Um, and it was 70, either 79 or 1980, probably near 1980 actually, yeah, 1980. I was uh, in, in Norwich again with my father <coughs> uh, buying stuff. Yeah, it would have been 1980. We're buying uh, stuff for what's going to be um, my, my outer year residence. Uh, the hovel, as I called it, uh, <laughs> for very good reasons, actually. I thought it was palatial, but actually it was a hovel. Um, so we're buying cuts. Uh, where's the bounty come in, you're wondering? We're buying plates, and uh, we went to Gerald's to buy all this cutlery and uh, stuff that you need, apparently, for cooking. Um, and we were passing the toy department, and they had an Airfix model of the bounty. Not made up, but just the box. And so it just caught my attention. I sort of looked at it and thought, Alan, you're, you're, nearly, you're, you're too old for models. You haven't made a model toy since you left school, and yet I just knew I was going to buy that at one stage. <laughs> and I think what appealed to me, looking back on it, was it had little figures on it. And you could actually see how small it was. 
It's only about 100 foot long. It's a very small vessel. And eventually I did buy it. And with the instructions, they gave a little book list. So I went off to the Norwich Library and found their bounty collection, or collection, started reading. And I started reading the, uh, an unf a fiction version of it, rather, which is the one where the films have been mostly made from. Uh, they're very, very sort of anti-Bly in it. Um, but one day, in a second-hand bookshop in Norwich, I just came across a paperback version of William Bly's own account of The Voyage of the Bounty, you know, for pennies. So I bought that, and reading it, he came across as a very different person. He was very concerned about the health of the crew. Now, he had been a protégé of Captain Cook, so he wanted to make sure that the men didn't get scurvy. Um, he actually regretted using the lash. I mean, he had to do it, but you know, he didn't, it didn't come up. Someone enjoyed doing it. It was a necessity. You know, he hired somebody to play the fiddle so that the men could dance and get exercise in the evenings. It just didn't sound like the Charles Lawton sneering version. You know, flogging is a science. You know, see, see my boatswain at work. Um, and I thought, well, what is the truth of this? So after exhausting the connection at Norwich Library, I learnt something called interlibrary loans, <laughs> which were quite cheap in those days. <laughs> and I got um, from the British Library a facsimile of the logbook of the bounty. Oh, actually, a huge thing. I must have got fortune to get it through the post. Bless them. So I sort of devoured that, and then I devoured any other book I could find on it. Um, and I came to the conclusion that Bly is not, as he's been depicted in popular press, I think many people have come to this year anyway, so nothing sort of revolutionary. But I did uh, start getting interested in the crew as well, and there's a chap called John Fryer, uh, who I learnt uh, was from Norfolk. And you know more than that, the book didn't say. So I thought, oh, I wonder where he comes from in Norfolk. Would it be nice to go and see his grave? Um, so the only way to find it was to go and get a copy of the book which mentioned where he was from, and that was his daughter, Mary Ann Gamble, uh, her sorry, her biography of her father, and the only copy I could get hold of was in the British Library, and they wouldn't loan it, but I could go down and see it. So I got a, went down to the British Library, and that's when it was in the British Museum, you know, the big mm -hmm. dome. Yeah, you know. in the reading room. Yeah, yeah. famous people have been there, and me. Um, <laughs> and I read through it, and uh, Mary Ann says her father was buried on the north side of the church. So, oh, well, north side. Uh, Wells next to sea, that was the key thing. Ah, uh, Wells next to sea, church. Uh, Norfolk Churchyard, brilliant. So when I went back to Norfolk, uh, to Norwich, we started at university, I said to Doreen, fancy a trip to uh, Wells Next Sea? So we caught a bus, because we didn't drive in those days, and uh, got up to um, the churchyard, and I said, ooh, it's a big churchyard, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure which is north in this, really. Um, why don't you look over there, and I'll look over here. And I was sort of looking at the graveyards, and I heard the gravestones, and I heard a little shriek from Doreen rushed over to see what the problem was. And what she'd been doing, she'd looked at the gravestone and as she'd looked up, there was this horned face looking over her, peering over the gravestone. It was a goat tethered on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but we didn't find his gravestone. And I bought the church guide and on the way back, I was flicking through it on the bus and it said that uh, you know, John Fryer is buried in the Wells churchyard. Many people have come to try and find it, but nobody knows where it is because we'd lost forever. And I thought, oh, blast. Well, fast forward many, many years, and when we were living in Norfolk properly, um, I, I got in contact and made friends with the Wells Local History Group. And uh, one of them said, do you know there's a photograph of the gravestone in situ? Which is something we didn't know about. We had an engraving of the gravestone, so we knew what it looked like, but not where it was. And the photograph showed an end gable of a building. 
which we could identify as being on the south side of the churchyard. So a completely different place from where um, the book had said it would be. So we got a little team together and we went over there and we looked around and what it, we found a gravestone that was the back of a gravestone that was laid flat and it had the right shape. And we said, well, should we raise that one? We had had the permission from the rector, by the way, uh, before we think we were doing dead and night grave lifting. <laughs> um, and we lifted it up and by golly, it was there. Oh, uh, exactly where we thought it would be. And because it had been laid down flat, yeah. it was preserved. Mm -hmm. It died in 1817 and it's as crisply carved then as it was now. There is another gravestone to some poor chap who was murdered in 1817 and that hasn't been laid down and you can see the weathering. Right. And the gravestone has now been moved inside the porch yeah. of the church at uh, St Nicholas at uh, Wales Next Sea and there's a plaque saying where he where it was came from. So in a little way sort of help yeah. find yeah, you know, a group of us who did it, but it's yeah. nice to be associated with it. Yeah, think, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It was your King John in the car park moment. Well, exactly, <laughs> that's exactly how I thought about it. Yeah. And it was better. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic, uh, Alan, and it makes it clear it would be very good to get you over here at some point to, to just tell us stories of, okay. of Norfolk. But um, uh, I think there's a, a few moments left. Shall we just see if anybody has a burning question they'd like to ask? Um, if not, I've got some more. Yes, out of the, um, as well, the barriers coming down vis-à-vis uh, -vis the Soviet Empire and that sort of thing, and Latvia now being a fully independent country, have you been back or no, have you been no. tempted to go? No, no. no. Um, seeing how they kicked us out in the first place, I don't really No, I, I know things have changed. I, I, I have wondered whether, I mean, quite nice, my, my grandfather was born at Jacobstadt, uh, which is south of Riga, and I thought it would be quite nice to go and see his birthplace. Um, but it's just the expense and the time but maybe now I'm retired there's an opportunity to I, I can't say I, I don't feel I have any, any affiliation with Latvia um, there was one little story I must tell then fits in well with this my, my, my youngest daughter quite misunderstanding sort of the, the grumblings about Eastern Europeans at school which when she was at school she just said well I'm Latvian to which one of her colleagues turned around and said, oh, no, you're not, except his language is much more... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. Well, she means she's of Latvian heritage, but no, we don't feel Latvian, we don't feel Russian. Hmm. Uh, we're just English, but with a funny surname. Sure. Which is really Yorkshire now. <laughs> Although, strangely, going there, you might find you've got affiliations that you're not aware of or sense of... Yeah, uh, it's not been ruled out. Hmm. It's just, I think it's going to be... I'm not quite sure what, what we'd find there. Hmm. Do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? I'd like to go to Australia. Why Australia? Um, to do with the bounty. To do with the bounty. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound really sad. <laughs> William Bly, having, having survived the uh, open boat voyage from the mutiny on the bounty, he was uh, appointed governor of New South Wales, where he suffered another mutiny. And at this point, most people say, this goes to show what a wrong, wrong, wrong chap he was. Um, but what had happened is a military force had been raised to police New South Wales, it was called the New South Wales Corps. But they'd been quite powerful because some of the governors had been quite weak and some of the uh, officers of the New South Wales Corps had been quite clever and they'd started to uh, uh, gather land. Um, they would control the flow of spirits, normally known as rum, but it could be any, any, any alcoholic drink. And in New South Wales, when they didn't have much of a currency, having access to rum and setting its price meant that they were very powerful indeed. As one book put it, uh, men would sell their land for rum and women would sell their bodies for it. So it was a commodity that people wanted. 
so they controlled the flow of uh, rum, the, the land grants. They're becoming quite wealthy. Um, and the home authorities realised this because they had the reports of previous governors, most of whom had been sent home broken by the Corps, and they sent Bly out to sort them out. Um, and in his typical robust fashion, he did. So much so that they led a rebellion on him on 26th of January 1808, which happened to be Australian Foundation Day, the anniversary of. Uh, he, he hid in Government House. He said he was hiding bes beside a bed to destroy some papers he didn't want the uh, rebels to get hold of. They claim they found him hiding under the bed, and there was a cartoon showing him being dragged out in full, full naval uniform by, uh, off, uh, by soldiers and officers of New South Wales Corps. Um, so I'd just love to go and see Australia from, from that point of view as well, because uh, I could sort of point out to Doreen that you know, that's where Government House was, and, <laughs> and that's, that's where the barracks were. <laughs> <laughs> and Doreen go, really? <laughs> but no, it just looks like a beautiful city, and because it has its history anyway, I kind of feel it like it'd be nice to go and see. Mm. It is, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, I yeah. thought you might want to go to Pitcairn to see the other side of the bounty story. If we could get there somehow, I know, I know. I mean, have enough trouble getting to, New, getting to uh, Australia, I think. Um, you know. I think you'd find that more difficult. Oh, yeah, but in the Pitcairn Island where the mutineers or the bounty uh, settled. I mean, yeah, I'd love to see that. If you go into Google Street View, you can actually go around it now. So I kind of have been to Pitcairn. <laughs> I have been to Australia as well, but it's not the same. <laughs> but you kind of get the sense of, you know, but it's, you know, being at a place, you get a different experience and if you uh, just go and look at it on the computer but I might have to just settle for Google Street View of Pitcairn Island. Do you remember I brought you in the, I do the cookbook? cookbook. Yeah. My son for his work was on Pitcairn Island ah. and uh, we were at Henderson Island, a part of the Pitcairn group and he brought me back as a present. Looks, you know, your children sometimes really come up to scratch, don't they? And he brought me back this cook Betty Christian Pitcairn cookery book signed by her. So I showed it to her. Fantastic. And we've all been. You kindly loaned it to me too. And I make sure I returned it as well. <laughs> Always what? give back a book if you've been loaned it. Yeah. Oh, this was on our shared reading sessions. Yes, it was. No, so, how did we get from shared those. reading? I don't even sure what reading it was, but how we got from shared to Pitcairn Island, I don't know. But. No, I don't always just talk about the bounty. I do have a life outside it, but yeah, well, we can explore this more when Bridget comes to do a talk in in, um, in March. Well, so, I just uh, it. yeah, yeah. Is there another question? Yeah, Keith. Given that in the past libraries have been great for taking books out, but now seem to be uh, not only for taking books but also for doing research, do you feel that the internet is the biggest threat to libraries because you can get a book on the internet and you can do your research on the internet? It's a threat and a bonus, I think. It depends how you look upon it, how it's played. The fact that we could get so much information freely now um, is a bonus. And the fact we get things like uh, Ancestry and Find My Past, and Find My Past is something that the library subscribes to. The fact you can get family history information so easily. Uh, the, the, the other side of that sword, though, and I, 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 I'd say is that it's interpretation and understanding. As with reading a book, you know, it, just because it's in print doesn't mean it's true. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. So I think there is still room for human beings to interact and steer people to good sites. I mean, this is one of the things that we would go through when we teach people how to use the internet, is how do you recognise if it's an authoritative site? Is it a government site? Is it an academic site? Which country of origin has it come from? Is this something that someone's maybe just put together in their bedroom? Don't forget to double, and it's easier now, but don't forget to double check facts. Yeah. Just because you've read it once doesn't mean that's true. Yeah. We know with printed books that people get things wrong. 
when I remember the Dictionary of National Biography, here we go, uh, got Bly's entry wrong. They said he was on Cook's second voyage. And I mean, you don't read books and they say he was on the second voyage. You think, you've just gone to Dictionary of National Biography and just copied it out, haven't you? Yeah. He was on the third voyage. Mm. But you know, so yeah, you've got to be very careful. Um, the interesting thing is as well, of course, that um, books are now outstripping Kindle sales mm. again. Yes. So though that was supposed to spell the death of books, yeah. and, com and libraries are beginning to take computers out of the library because they're being underused, yes. but um, books are holding their own, Th I think. There's so. always been threats, though, to books, haven't there? I think when cinemas came in, when films came in, there was talking you know, about people go to cinemas, or when TV came in, when, when computers came in, and yet books have always been robust and stayed. And I do worry a little bit about what's going to happen with this digital stuff because we know that technologies change and is well I suppose what I'm really saying is will we in a hundred years time be able to read what we've got in digital format today mm. well at least with a book we know we have books going back hundreds of years in Kings Lynn Library they've got books going back to the 14th century not for loan it's a special <laughs> collection I used to add but you know will we in this you know, a few centuries time will, have we, will we be almost like the dark ages we've lost so much information yeah. that there's this gap I'm, I'm sure that there'll be ways to keep on converting the information, but I we hope. We yeah, hope. I, I do hope so because mm. I'm not a luddite. I do see the advantages of yeah. digital, but I'm also aware that there's a danger of putting all your eggs in one basket. I guess, and when that technology changes, or something really, you know, something comes in that we can't even imagine at this day that makes everything obsolete. Mm. You know, also, people love books, mm. holding them. Them. Smelling them, yeah. everything. I mean, yeah. Well, one thing I do now, apart from volunteering for the local study section in Kings Lynn Library, I've, I've, I've joined the Arts Society Kings Lynn. Um, I did it the wrong way round. Again, this is one thing that's happened to me. Um, it was a neighbour of ours said that she, she's on a church recording group. Would I like to come along? So that sounded interesting. So basically, they, they take a church and they look at things like the stone, uh, tablets, um, glass, metal. Um, pictures, you know, anything, and do a, a, a snapshot of what it looks like with photographs and words. Um, but then I realised in order to do that, I had to join the Art Society Kings Lynn because they, they oversee it and yeah. for insurance purposes. So I joined them, and then they do something else I learned about, which is clean the books at Oxborough Hall, which is the point I was going to get to. Yeah. So, yes, um, as of yesterday, I, I was cleaning books at Oxborough Hall. And they're really filthy books, you know, mm. playing around these dirty books. But they are, you know, <laughs> totally dusty. But the feel of them is lovely. And, you know, and we're talking about real leather-bound books. Mm. It might not be that ancient. You know, we might be sort of Victorian. And I don't think there's anything of yet a real great antiquity. But it's just the fact that they're there and they're being cared for. And it's nice to play a little role in doing that. Mm. But, yeah. Polly's got a question. Just love to bring you back to something I think you're quite interested in, the bounty. Um, have you treated yourself to going to London yet since the Maritime Museum in Greenwich has opened the Pacific Island galleries? Haven't been there then yet. Then you're in for a treat because oh. there's an awful lot about the bounty and there's stuff, there's logbooks, there's pigtails, there's stuff about Pitcairn Island. So much has come out of their archives, let alone the rest of it and about the endeavour and the... It, it's, right. Yes, mm. if you go, you'll go in one end and you'll come out four hours later. Curiously, we went to go to Greenwich. <laughs> we, we went to see the uh, Franklin expedition. Yes. 
and I did try and find the vanity stuff, but they, I couldn't find it. Maybe it's uh, being put aside. It's a new gallery. Right. I didn't know about the new gallery, so I would like to go. We said we'd like to go back to Greenwich because we'd like to see the Cutty Sark well, a bit more than Australia. the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did go down to their exhibition about the bounty. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, nineteen eighty nine. It must have been the, the anniversary, and I was. A bit of glass there, but it was that close yeah. to the bounty. <laughs> a bit of the bounty wood and nails, twisted nails. And I was well, this whole big opening up and reinterpretation. I'm going there. As well. Thank you, Paul. The yeah. and the reinterpretation of history, yeah. but the artefacts that have come and they're now there. And you're still behind the glass, but um, I think you might get a bit excited. One little story I do remember <laughs> the National Grand. This is when I was courting Doreen. Um, my parents and I went up, and Doreen went up to the National Maritime Museum. Uh, I'd heard on the radio that they'd recovered one of the cannons that uh, Captain Cook had over thrown over the uh, when Endeavour struck a reef. They needed to lighten the, the, the vessel, so they threw what they could overboard, including the cannon, uh, to lighten it so they get off the reef. Um, so we went to the museum, and I couldn't see the cannon anywhere. So I went up to a curator and said, um, or a guard, and said. Do you have Captain Cook's cannon here? Oh yes, yeah, behind the scenes, come with me. So off I went. When I came back, my parents were furious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there he is. Oh, is this typical of him to disappear? <laughs> well, it's now in these new galleries, so you won't have to disappear behind the scenes. I'm coming back there, thank you. You really must. Well, we were a bit over our time, but we were a little bit late starting, I think. So um, if we could just thank Alan in the traditional way for... Thank you very much.